Are you recording now? Branch. 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 Branch out. A podcast from the Royal Botanic Garden, Sydney. It started as a very raw piece of landscape. Because the landscapers and the gardeners down there stuck to their guns, got the planting in, today we have this unique facility for the whole world to look at, just less than an hour from the CBD of Sydney. Recognise that voice? It belongs to the legendary Graham Ross, presenter of over a thousand episodes on Australia's number one lifestyle show, Better Homes and Gardens. The good news is that even in cooler and temperate parts of Australia, you too can create your very own tropical paradise. You know, spring is a perfect time to be planting out fresh herbs, delicious veggies. He's also the ambassador for the Australian Botanic Garden at Mount Annan and helped celebrate its 30th birthday recently in Western Sydney. I do get a bit emotional, but it was such an emotional day to see hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of mums and dads and kids enjoying it. You know, as I said to them in a little, a little speech, I said, this is your Hyde Park. This is your local park. But to understand why it was so emotional, we have to go back in time. Starting with what makes a botanic garden more than just a park. People's thinking of a park might be a place you'd recreate, um, and that's often no different to a botanic garden. That's John Seaman, curator manager at the Australian Botanic Garden. But in the case of our botanic garden, all our trees are curated and they're a scientific collection. So we uh, have teams that know where they've collected that plant from, they've propagated it, they've cared for it, they've nurtured it, and they've got records all about those. And often that's the main distinguishing feature where a park has a lot of nice trees with some shade. Ours is a curated collection. Now, you've heard the word curator and curated pop up a few times. How do you do that with plants? A curator of an art gallery might choose a painting and where to put it and on what wall it goes on. In the same way, my role is to help manage the collection here, the living collection, because a tree, unlike a painting, might stay there for a short period of time. A tree's there for perhaps a couple of hundred years, so you want to make sure it's in the right place. And John has a lot of land to curate. I'm talking the size of over 700 football fields. It's the largest botanic garden in Australia. But being only 30 years old it does make you wonder what was on this land before it was a botanic garden. It's been transformed from the Indigenous custodians through a whole series of agricultural changes. Back in 1818, Lachlan Macquarie started handing out the first land grants. They were originally for share farming, and then William Howe acquired 3,000 acres and then another 7,000 acres, which formed a significant land parcel out here in Western Sydney. And then cropping and uh, dairy farming took over and modified the landscape significantly. Right and here, where we are. Right, this, yeah, oh. yeah, yeah. In fact, a lot of the natural vegetation that you see around us has regrown from some remnant material because oh, okay. if you look in the distance, you see those rolling grassy hills. That's really what the transformation of the landscape became. It was about feeding, feeding large animals, sheep. Um, I think there were around... 400 sheep and 300 lambs or something like that, plus 12 government cattle in the, the first original land grant. And uh, the garden then became a dairy farm. And then it was a riding school before it was acquired by the St. Lands Protection Board, effectively the state government, to protect it for future generations in the 1960s. Um, and then the story starts to unfold from there. It sure does. 
and Graham Ross played a huge part in shaping this former cow paddock into a botanic garden during a time when Australia started shining the spotlight on its native plants. We had a herbarium full of native plants. It was obvious we needed somewhere special for them to grow. Graham's talking about the National Herbarium of New South Wales, currently at the Royal Botanic Garden in Sydney CBD, which contains 1.45 million pressed and dried plant specimens collected by botanists. So when the chance came up to create a botanic garden just for Australian native plants on the outskirts of Sydney, a massive growth area, it was a, it was a godsend. And all those people in the background who were breeding ferns, breeding grevilleas, breeding eucalypts, breeding wattles, they suddenly had somewhere to... They had somewhere for this stuff to go so that people could see. Oh, that's what it looks like. So the revolutionary all-native botanic garden vision was set. The seeds were planted and the garden was ready to be opened as a bicentenary project. By 88, which is the bicentennial year, and uh, Sandra and I were appointed horticulturists to the, to the bicentenary in Canberra. Sandra is Graham's wife, who used to be a radiographer, but turned out to be a talented horticulturist. So we were kissing babies and planting trees all over Australia. It was an amazing time. We knew that Mount Annan, which was the first bicentennial project in Australia. So we're very proud of that. And, and it did put us on the map. The Duke and Duchess of York were even there. But as you know... Plants take time to grow, and turning a cow paddock into a native botanical oasis doesn't happen overnight. Not even for the royal family. I can remember watching um, uh, the Duchess of York coming down from the hill at the top. We were all just horrified because it was just this great mass of concrete. But all the gardeners said, oh, that's all right, we planted the trees, it'll grow. And all the politicians thought, this is a diabolical mess, this is dreadful. What are you worried about? We've planted stuff, you know. You just need to be patient. Go away and be patient. So 30 years later, were the gardeners right? Was the 30th birthday party at Mount Annan a celebration of patience? All the gardens were planted. You couldn't even see the concrete uh, for the 30th birthday celebration. You know, the trees had grown. There was a forest there now. There are birds in there now. There are animals that live in there. There's this whole habitat. Because 30 years ago, the Royal Botanic Gardens took on the challenge to create this amazing Australian Botanic Garden. But people don't just show up for parties at Mount Annan. The garden received 441,000 visitors over the course of last year alone. And growing very quickly. The primary reason I think people love this garden is, is the ability to recreate in it. It's wonderful green lungs and a jewel in the crown of MacArthur, the locals call it. It's a nice place to kick a ball around, ride a bike, go for a walk. We're probably talking about 100 kilometres plus of walking trails. Whoa, 100 kilometres of walking trails? Uh, yeah, I'll never cover that off in a single podcast. But I can tell you about the amazing colourful features at the front of the Connections Garden. So what we're looking at is our annual spring display. It's a display mostly of Western Australian paper daisies. We're standing in front of what looks like a Technicolor explosion of glitter. That's alive. Pinks, the whites of the rhodanthes and the yellows of the showinias. I mean, to me, it just looks like if you would Google image search spring, yep. like this would come up. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to think so. Every, every good garden should have 
a postcard shot. And we've got a few, but really this is this is one of our most iconic areas of the garden. And next to the paper daisies, there's another pop of colour you cannot miss. This is Leshenoltia. They come in a number of, well, there's a number of different species and they come in a number of different colours, but this vibrant electric blue seems to go particularly well on social media and everyone wants one. So much so that our growing friends, who are a bunch of volunteers that are extremely passionate, they propagate plant material from our collection and sell it and the revenue comes back through uh, the foundation friends of the Botanic Gardens. They can't keep up production of Leshenaltia. It is so popular it walks out the door and there's a waiting list. That gives you an idea of just how amazing this electric blue coloured flower is. And of course, you can find New South Wales' most iconic native flowers here too. The people that are visiting at the moment, you, you hear what they're talking about. The Waratahs are really popular. Oh. The reds and there's a white one just yeah. here, which is actually a native form just uh, from not too far away. Yep, the Waratah. New South Wales' bright red floral emblem. Hang on a minute. Did he say white as well? I didn't know there were white waratahs. Yeah, yeah, that one's just there. And you can hybridise, if you want a pink, you cross a white oh. and a red. It's, it's like Mendelian genetics. It, it really works that way. So that's how you get your pinks. But it's not all about pretty flowers and social media shots here. Push deeper into the garden and you'll get into our true collections of wild collected material. So for people who maybe just have a short trip to Australia, they're visiting family in the city or something, they don't get that opportunity to get out into the bush. Yep. This might be as close as they can get. Well, the Connections Garden that we're standing on now is a snapshot of Australia's biodiversity. I think if you've only got a limited amount of time, it's a great place to get an introduction to Australia. John says seeing and smelling aren't the only ways to experience what native Aussie plants have to offer. I'm going um, to see if you've ever tried this before. John's gone and picked off a couple of leaves from a nearby shrub and told me to chow down and guess what it is. Eating a random leaf off some shrub thing. It takes just seconds for the flavour to hit me. I've tasted the ocean. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Do you know what it is? People know it from the lamb that they've eaten, but they probably never associate it with the plant. It's saltbush, and it's just one example of one of the native plants in the garden with culinary uses. But, uh, side note, please don't go on a food safari when you visit. So after our salty snack, John's leading me to the top of the Connections Garden. This is, uh, we're just standing <laughs> at a boab that was transported from about three and a half thousand kilometres away. A lot of people look at this and go, oh, what have you got South African flora? What have you got? Uh, well, it's not African flora at all. This is a bottle tree style plant, one of a handful of deciduous species that occur in Australia. Deciduous means shedding your leaves annually, like a winter coat. Trees you'd expect of this size, instead of having wood inside, it's got fibrous tissue oh, okay. and it carries its water inside that fibrous tissue. It's so awesome. And its bark has this beautiful salmon pink gold shimmer to it. It's reflective so it can tolerate the extreme heat that it occurs in the northern parts of Australia. But bringing this big tree from 3,000 kilometres away seems crazy, right? Well, you know, it's, the Botanic Gardens are experimental. 
it's the science part. So we wanted to bring in more representation of the deciduous species. And one of the big gaps that we had was Adansonia. We didn't have it in the collection. And the more representations, the easier it is to explain concepts to people. But Australia isn't known for having plants that lose their leaves at certain parts of the season. But there are some good examples. But there are other really important areas in the garden that aren't the most experimental or colourful. It has three critically endangered plant communities. One of them we're walking through right now, the Cumberland Plain Woodland. The Cumberland Plain Woodland is a key part of the garden because it's one of six main Indigenous forest communities in Sydney. It comprises an open tree canopy made up of three dominant tree species. But instead of looking up, you have to look down to see the real magic. The rich diversity occurs in the understory where there's as much as 140 different herby species. There's not a lot to show for it at the moment, but it will react very quickly after fire or water and, and restore a lot of that diversity quite quickly because the seeds are stored in the soil seed bank. And of course, what happens when you protect a large diversity of native plants and forest communities? There's tons and tons of kangaroos, swamp wallabies and wallaroos on site. Mm. There's echidnas, there's lace minder lizards. We've got um, about 190 bird species have been recorded over the last 30 years. And you'll never guess what animal is really special here. One of the endangered species that we've got on site happens to be a snail. Yep, it's the endangered Cumberland Plain land snail. I suppose a, a, like a garden snail that you might find in your home, but they're quite distinctive because instead of having a round shell, their shell is quite flattened and on roughly a 45 degree angle and they're really easy to spot once you get your eye in. They eat fungus and so they need moisture in the ground which we haven't had a lot of and they effectively hibernate through those hotter periods of the year in the leaf litter and uh, we just need to be careful that we don't uh, damage them in any way when we're doing our restoration activities across the site. And it's visitors who also need to be aware of the endangered snails. But instead of just putting up a sign at the entrance... There's some sculptures on the right-hand side of the road as you enter our first major woodland section, and they're the large Cumberland land snail, and they're a, a reference to the significance of that snail. If snails aren't really your thing, then maybe these guys are. And this nice little pond area, I can hear, like, some kind of amphibian thing. I don't know what that is. But... <laughs> Definitely a frog. Uh, there's about eight species of frogs on site. I'm not a frog expert, but you can hear at least two croaking away at the moment. On top of creating vital habitats and a beautiful area for people to recreate, it's an important place for reflection. Because before this land was a dairy farm and a riding school or even a botanic garden, it belonged to the original custodians of the land. One of my favourite spots on site is where the Stolen Generations Memorial is, which is a nice reference to the Indigenous custodians, the Durrell, that looked after the land. And I'd like to think that going into that woodland is as close as it was to how those original custodians managed it back then. Sitting there, hearing the bellbirds ding away in the background, is a very peaceful moment and and a nice reflective space within the garden away from the hustle and bustle of the rest of the parts where the, the public hang out. The story that comes with that Stolen Generations Memorial is that in order for the Indigenous community to leave their sorrows behind, it needs to be a one-way journey. So they go through to the memorial, leave their sorrows at that memorial and then continue through on a one-way experience because if they double back 
to their car, they actually take their sorrows back out with them. And I really like that, um, that thinking of, of movement and leaving things behind. And the central piece of the memorial is this powerful sculpture by the highly acclaimed Aboriginal artist Badger Bates. On the front is a, uh, is a family with tears dripping down their face and you can pick up a little bowl from the pond below and scoop up your own tears and trickle them onto the sculpture and they return back into that pond. And on the back is the rainbow serpent. It's a really lovely sculpture with some footprints moving their way through the landscape down below. The good thing is, as long as we're all encouraging people to garden and to engage with nature, glory, that's our job. That's really our job, to engage children and grandparents and everyone in between. And that's what the Australian Botanic Garden does. It's not only created a place for people to enjoy native plants, it encourages people to take a piece home with them. There has been a bit of a refocus on native plants because of Mount Annan, and that's a good thing. The more people that go there, they get engaged with their own native plants, and then they come back and they, they say, well, I'm going to take that rose out, and I'm going to plant a wattle, and I'm going to plant this stand of grevillea. Who would have thought we'd have stand of grevilleas? Grevilleas on a two-metre um, you know, lollipop stem weeping down to the ground. You know, if you talked about that 35 years ago, before Manannan opened, people would say, heresy, that's heresy. And putting native plants in your garden can have a bigger effect on your community than you think. So that white mahogany there and the one round on the corner, they're endemic to Beecroft, they're endemic to this bit of square land. Um, when we lost the 140-year-old tree, it shattered the community and it's galvanised them. So in five years, we've now planted five of these white mahoganies. We now have four new families of powerful owls that live in these trees. And a tree is still beautiful and powerful even when it's dead. There's a tree, listeners, that's completely blue. It's amazing. That's right. Graeme's talking about the famous blue tree at the Australian Botanic Garden. Has no leaves. It's a beautiful, magnificent, huge blue tree. So when it died, instead of ripping it out of the ground, it was painted bright blue, transforming it into an amazing sculpture and allowing it to continue its role in the landscape as a habitat for birds, insects and other animals. Thanks for listening to Branch Out. If you live in Sydney or you're planning to visit, definitely spend a day at the Australian Botanic Garden. And if you're a bicentennial baby like me, get a photo next to the giant 30 sign. Now, because it's spring in Australia, next episode, we're taking a look at the busy and bizarre world of bees. The waggle dance is this really cool thing that goes on in the beehive where a bee goes and discovers all these flowers. Right? And they compensate for the sun moving with time and a headwind and all this stuff, but, but using the dance, tell the other bees how to find those flowers. But it's not just about the cute and quirky. Pollinators are essential for the survival of some of our precious plants, and us. You know, if you want to look after a plant, you've got to consider what pollinates it and make sure that's conserved. If you want to know more about how world-leading scientists are delivering solutions to some of the world's most critical environmental issues, head to the Royal Botanic Garden Sydney's website and check out the science page. And of course, if you're loving Branch Out, make sure you hit subscribe 
leave a five-star rating and a positive review. It helps more people find us. Thank you.